Hello, church. Welcome to service today. I am so glad to see each and every one of you here. My name is Jordan, and I get the chance to serve as the formation director here at Hope Midtown. I get to work with our incredible team of small group leaders and get to oversee some of the courses that we run. And one encouragement I want to give each and every one of you here is that I hope you would get involved in the midweek expressions of our churches and our small groups and our courses. I think it's the opportunity to grow closer to God in scripture and in prayer, as well as closer to one another as we share with one another. I think it's where much of what we preach and encourage you to do here on Sundays gets to happen live. It's life on life. Uh, what we say here on Sunday happens in those midweek moments. Uh, it's life together with one another and for one another. Now, I'm really excited to share this message with you today. And uh, one of the reasons why is because of what I believe about Scripture. I think that there is an inherent blessing in the reading and hearing of God's word. I think just by the fact that we have heard scripture read to us, that we have sat here, taken the time to listen to God's word spoken to us, that God has already begun to do something in and around us, both as individuals and as a community. See, when I was younger, I found myself very captivated by scripture as a subject. See, the Bible was this really weird, like cross-discipline anthology series of all these different genres and moments and histories. In First and Second Kings, we have these histories of these like insane assassinations and battles and political machinations happening. The, the poetry of the Old Testament in the Psalms and in the prophets was incredible. It's this collection of different expressed emotion around all kinds of topics, romance, violence, sex, every, like it was crazy. Everything was in, that, in those poems. And the thing is, more and more, though, as I've explored Scripture and as God has met me in Scripture, I think it's more than just a book with information about God. I think Scripture is like the burning bush in Exodus. It is the place where God's voice can be heard. Theologian Eugene Peterson says this about scripture. He says that the intention of the revelation of scripture is not to inform us of God, but to involve us in God, to involve us in a living word, an active conversation where God as a person is speaking to us as a people. So I wholeheartedly believe that half the work has already been done. God's word has been spoken. You guys have heard God's word. And because of that, you have, we've become involved in a living relationship with God. So I enter into this text today with full faith of what God will do and how God will speak through this text. This is our third week in our series on suffering. It's summertime in New York City, which means kids are playing underneath the spray of fire hydrants. In my neighborhood, I live in Washington Heights, everybody, nine-year-olds, grandmas, 70-year-old retirees, everybody's playing dominoes. You can hear the slapping on tables of people putting those dominoes down. Uh, the summer breeze is wafting. Kids are off school. We got street fairs. We got open markets. Uh, the sun is kissing our skin, right? And yet, despite the fair weather, despite the sunshine, we live in tension. That while there is joy, while there is enjoyment, while there is happiness, there is also hardship, struggle, suffering. Darkness and light is the tension we have to live in. We live in uneasy times. There is talk of an imminent or maybe already here recession. We, we have uncertainty around our jobs, around 
the growth of our organizations, there's conversations about hiring freezes, there's conversations around layoffs, rumors are abounding about what our financial future as a city will look like. We are still underneath the shadow of an ever-evolving pandemic as we process the collective trauma of what we've experienced, of the death, of the devastation. We try to, to, to go back to some normal in our schools, in our workplaces, in our communities, but we still have that collective memory, that collective trauma of what we experience together. There are many things completely outside of our hands, completely outside of the locus of our own control that threaten our stability and security that we think we have in our lives. Particularly in America, I think we have this value of self-determination, the ability to forge one's own destiny in this country. Uh, and while that hasn't been our complete story, we, there's a history underneath it. The, the Civil Rights Act was, uh, was passed the same year my mom was born. She's not that old, guys. Like, we, we have a, a complicated history, that tension of dark and light. And, and despite having this virtue of rugged individualism, I think uh, in America we have that virtue, and in New York City, I think we have that even more, that, that is magnified here in the city. The saying about New York City, if you can make it here, you can make it anywhere. There's something about this city that, 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 that speaks of opportunity. My, my parents, uh, they immigrated to America from India in the late 80s and early 90s. And they understood that the US was the land of opportunity. And they came to New York City because they believed that it was the city of opportunity. And yet, for all the opportunity presented to the residents of this incredible place, it is also a location where we experience and are exposed to a great deal of suffering. Many of us are worked to the absolute bone, to our absolute limit, just to get by, just to make rent. From medical residents, to financial professionals, to shift workers, to even pastors, the grind and hustle of the city seemingly grinds us down almost to dust. When we live in a city as amazing as New York City, we're exposed to all kinds of beauty, to incredible things, incredible people. There's amazing art and architecture and the people who painstakingly designed it. There's access to immense wealth, skyscrapers, all kinds of things. There's a diversity of people and experience that are beautiful and glamorous and yet, on the other end of that spectrum, just by virtue of being around this many people, it means we see suffering in ways that other places and people often don't have to. Poverty, homelessness, untreated mental illness, right? These are daily realities for many of us who live here. And while we don't all suffer under those systems, we still are not isolated from the lived experience of them. In these past weeks, we looked at the suffering of Job and we, we explored the suffering of Hannah. In our first week, Kathy shared with us how Job's crushing suffering was inexplainable. It was baffling. It was more than a human could handle. And yet his response in that suffering was to remain connected to God in worship. That doesn't mean he didn't cry, he didn't weep. That doesn't mean he doesn't question God. But what he did do was he refused to turn away from God, because on the other side, he knew that God did not turn away from him. 
And last week saw, we saw in Hannah's suffering, it came from the inability of those around her to understand her pain and the desires of her heart. Despite the unthoughtful words of her husband, despite the false accusations of her spiritual leader, her like pastor, her priest, despite all of that, Hannah's faithful response was to allow her grief to go to God, to turn to prayer. Hannah's faithful response was lamenting to the Lord. Now, finally, this week, we will look at the struggles of Paul. And despite the fact that his suffering was of no fault of his own, despite the fact that it was completely out of his hands, and despite the fact that he could literally point, he could look them in the eyes, the people who were at fault for his suffering, the people that caused it, his chosen faithful response in this situation was service. Service to God and service to others. And all of these faithful, faithful responses in Hannah, in Job, and in Paul, I think we realize that they're fully revealed in Jesus, in his life, and in his work, the Son of God. So let's get into our text today. Let's get into Acts 27, guys. So Paul is on the tail end of this journey to Rome. He has felt called by God directly to make the travel to Rome, to testify before Caesar, the head of the Roman Empire, and to share the good news of the gospel with the city, the news that Jesus, the Son of God, who died for the sins of humanity, has been raised from the dead, and now he is offering new life for everybody. It was good news then, and it's good news now. Now, he has a good mission to go on to, so you would think that it's, God would pave his journey with kind of a golden brick road, but that is not what happens. Let's take a look real quick at a quick recap of what's happened in Acts so far on his way to Rome. Acts 21, we get this story. Uh, Paul tries to go to church. He tries to go to the temple to worship, and what it says is that the whole city goes into uproar, and this angry mob tries to grab him and kill him. Uh, he is attacked by an angry mob for trying to worship in Acts 21. Now, you would think, okay, hopefully someone stopped this mob, but what actually happens is that Paul gets arrested for this. Paul is put into prison, and while he is in custody in prison, in Acts 23, we get this story that 40 men take this vow, and they say, we will not eat or drink until we kill Paul. There is this plot to murder Paul while he's in prison. And the next, uh, luckily Paul survives this assassination attempt, but we get this story of a trial that Paul is put under. Now that he's in jail, he is put in this trial, and in this trial, they stir up these false witnesses to accuse him of desecrating the Jewish temple, the thing that he loves the most, worshiping God. They accuse him of, of being a kind of person that he was not. Paul is having a bad time, and to make matters worse, he is not found guilty, and yet he spends two years in prison until he can make his, 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 uh, his trip to Rome. Paul is having a bad time, to put things lightly. He, in the midst of it all, in the midst of the hardship that he's going through, he is still sharing the good news of Jesus. He's sharing his testimony, he's sharing what he's experienced of Jesus, he's sharing the truth of what Jesus has done in this world. Despite his honesty, his fairness, and faithfulness, though, Paul is still subject to incredible, incredible, difficult circumstances. And at the beginning of Acts 27, we might be tempted to say, 
can't get worse than this, right? Like, Paul's had, a, had his run of bad luck at this point. He should probably get a, a break. If I was Paul's friend, I'd tell him, you know, you can take a vacation at this point. You can take some PTO. It's, you've, you've done your due diligence. You've tried your hardest. And take some time off, maybe take a swing at it another time. And yet, I think, like much of our lives, uh, often we think that we have hit rock bottom, and we discover that rock bottom is actually much farther down. Uh, I know there have been seasons of my life where it felt like blow after blow have come, that the punches did not keep rolling, and I thought I was at the end of it, and things don't turn around our way. Has there been a season in your life where you've experienced that kind of suffering, that kind of hardship, where you never got that opportunity to get back up? where it feels like the only thing that we can experience is the crushing experience of pain and suffering. And despite everything Paul has already endured, here's what happens as he gets on this boat. Now, this trip to Rome, this trip, this leg of the journey was supposed to take only a couple hours. This is a pretty quick one-day boat ride. And here is what Luke describes to us, what happens to Paul as he gets on this boat. Now, it says... The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it. So what that means is this, this insane windstorm begins, and Paul and the people on the boat are trying to figure out how to navigate this ship. And usually when you have a crazy strong wind, what you want to do is you want to get parallel to that wind, right? So that your sails can catch the wind and you can kind of just catch it and ride. But this wind is so bad that they cannot even turn the boat in the direction of the wind. Instead, the wind is hitting the side of the boat, right? So waves are crashing onto the boat. The the boat is being swayed back and forth. They are moments away from capsize. It continues to get worse. It says next that they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. What that means is that the very planks that the ship is made of are actually being torn apart by these waves. This boat is hanging on for dear life to even remain a boat. It is barely being held together. They have to tie it with ropes to keep it together. Next, it says, we took such a violent battering, they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. Now, the entire purpose of a nautical journey like this is to transport cargo. It's a financial investment to try to, like, uh, to, to participate in trade. So this trip is getting so bad, it's getting so unsafe, so dangerous that they say money doesn't matter at this point. We need to stay afloat at whatever cost happens. So they start to throw the cargo which they're transporting. It gets even worse that on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard. The ship's tackle is like the rigging for the sails. It's all the ropes that you use on a boat to try to navigate. So this ship is in such danger that it's not worth keeping the navigational equipment on the boat. It's that bad. And then the worst thing happens, I think, which it's the most scary thing, which is neither the sun nor the stars appeared for many days. Now, if you've ever been to like a beach at night on a day that it's overcast, one of the experiences you'll get is kind of like the endless blackness of the sea, like this kind of like, just it looks like it goes on and on for eternity. Now, they're in this insane storm, and they no longer have any light to guide them. They didn't have GPS, they didn't really have really good nautical maps, and they don't know where they are. So when the sun and stars go away, that means they can, they can no longer navigate, they can no longer choose the correct direction to go into. I think this is an apt metaphor. 
for our suffering, the suffering we might experience in our daily lives. Many times in our life, we experience that being driven along, right, where we are at a loss for having any kind of control of our lives, whether it be an unexpected medical diagnosis, whether it be a broken relationship that comes out of nowhere, whether it be a job loss, right? We thought we were on one path. We thought we had, uh, we had our hands on the wheel of our life, and yet suddenly the wind comes, and we cannot even control the direction we go into. There are days I wake up and I feel like I am a boat that is barely holding itself together. I feel like my life is being held together by duct tape and crazy glue, right? Just like feeling like we are in imminent collapse, that there is barely enough to even hold on. The idea that in suffering sometimes things just start getting dropped, balls start getting dropped, our responsibilities, our finances, our, our relationships, we just, we have nothing to give, we have nothing to offer, so, so things just start falling apart. And then the experience of suffering and lostness, the feeling that we don't know how we ended up here, the feeling that we are without direction, that we don't have sun or stars, we don't have a roadmap of our lives, and we're just lost. There's, there's nowhere to go. We feel like we're at the end of the journey and we don't even know where the journey is going. Again, I think it would make a lot of sense for Paul to say enough's enough. This, you know, I tried to do this thing that God asked me to do. I tried to be faithful to my purpose to serve the world, but I, I can't. Like, I, I just can't. It's too much. There, obstacle after obstacle, hardship after hardship, evil after evil has come up against me and this is out of line. This is the end of the line. I, I can't do it. When we are faced with seemingly insurmountable, unrelenting suffering and difficult circumstances, my question for us is what is our response? How do we respond? I know for me, I think there are, there are three temptations that we often face when we are put before uncontrollable suffering. For me, here's my big one, denial. I like to think that if I pretend like I'm not upset, if I pretend like I'm okay, then I actually am okay. And that is, not, that is the furthest thing from the truth. Uh, my wife, Emily, who's here with me, uh, one of the greatest gifts she offers me is oftentimes I'll look at her and tell her, I'm not upset, and then she'll tell me, yeah, you are, and she's right. She's absolutely right, but it's the ability to just own the fact that things are bad, to own the fact that things are hard, and to not deny the circumstances we are in, to not pretend like we are not hurt or harmed. I think in New York City, we often have a second temptation, which is delusion. We are highly accomplished people. We are often highly educated people. We are, uh, we are highly, highly motivated people. So I think we are often motivated to think that we can just work our way to, out of suffering, right? Okay, you know what? If I just really like, hunker down and try to kill my next performance review, then my career will be back on track. If I just put out as many job applications as I want, then I can get my life back on track. If, if I do this, if I, if I do this for this person, if I do that for that person, then I'll feel like I have fulfilled, meaningful relationships. We try to work our way out of suffering sometimes, and I think we have this delusion that we can be in control of what's happening around us, that we can fix all the suffering in our lives. And I think the reality is, is that we are not in control. And that is a, one of the things that we need to accept as humans. And the third major temptation, the temptation we see the crew, the, th the crew of 300 men on this ship, the one that they fall into, is in despair. And they're not wrong for falling into despair. It makes sense to despair in this situation. Their lives are in danger. In despair, we often feel like there is no hope, there is no chance, and we just resign ourselves to our fate. 
We, we accept that this is the way things are and we just have to live with it. We give into our circumstances and have low faith. We have low hope and expectancy for God's involvement in our life. We've just given up. I think none of these are the ways that Jesus actually invites us to live. And in fact, it's not the way Paul responds. Let's, let's see how Paul, what Paul does in this. So in verse 21, it says this, Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourself this damage and loss. I love Paul because of his honesty here. We've been talking about lament the past few weeks, the ability to be honest before God and people about the things that have gone wrong. And what I love about Paul is that he is not above I told you so. And he is not above like pointing fingers. And I think that's really important, actually. It's not a bad thing to point fingers. I had a therapist who once told me that forgiveness always begins with accusation. It requires accusation. If we are not able to say, hey, that was wrong, what, that was hurtful, that was harmful, that was a bad decision that was made, how would we forgive anyone? If we just say things are okay, that's not forgiveness, that's denial. We have to have the ability to make accusations without requiring punishment, to make accusations while embracing people into, into the love of God. And that's what Paul does here, is he names their wrongdoing. He looks at his captors, at the people who have unjustly tried him, and he tells them what they've done is wrong. And yet he doesn't call down evil on them. Next, what I also love about Paul is that he doesn't overpromise. He doesn't act like he is in control of the situation. He says, this ship is gone. This ship is, is finito. It's done. We're not, we're not going to be able to save this ship. And what I love about that is that Paul does not pretend like he is the solution to suffering. He does not pretend to be a divine miracle man who can just do whatever he wants in any situation and make the, way, make the world go the way he wants. Instead, who he is is a passionate person who deeply cares about the people on the ship, even if they're different from him, even if they've wronged him. He is someone who can't stop the suffering around him, but he's, he's a person who communes with God for the sake of those around him so that, that, that they can be met by God in the midst of his suffering. He talks about how he met with God in the next few verses. In verse 23, it says, Last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given to you all the lives of all who save with you, sail with you. Paul is first and foremost grounded in his identity to the God to whom he belongs. In the midst of the suffering that he has, in the midst of the circumstances he's experiencing, he remembers his relationship with God. He remembers the living, embodied connection he has with God, that he has a God to whom he belongs. He remembers his relationship as a beloved child and stays true to the fact that God is sovereign, loving, and at work regardless of his circumstances around him. One thing I love is that you know, the invitation to serve in suffering is not a call to not take care of yourself. It's not a call to don't spend time with God. It's a call to actually commune and be with God. Paul, in the midst of this suffering, took a moment to be with God and to hear from God. He was open to receiving from God. Secondly, Paul is not just grounded in his identity. He's grounded in his purpose, the God whom I serve. 
He believes in the trustworthiness of the God that has called him and given him a direction to go. His life was centered around the purposes of God, but that does not mean that Paul did not experience obstacle and suffering along the way. See, Paul might have been tempted to say, oh, I have all these obstacles, maybe I was wrong about God. Maybe I was wrong about my call to serve and love my neighbors as myself. And yet, but Paul doesn't do that. Despite persecution, despite political resistance, despite mob mentality being around Paul and getting in the way of Paul, he continues to remain true to his calling, even as the earth itself tries to get in his way. He remembers why he is in his situation, and he remembers why God called him to, call, called him to go to Rome. Thus, he remains faithful to his call and his purpose. I believe that in the midst of our suffering, we are called to remain true to our invitation to love our neighbors as ourselves. See, we're called to remain true to our identity as people who serve God. And serving God is never a detached, otherworldly experience, but it's always tied to a love of neighbor. And love of neighbor is anyone. What, I, what, what is beautiful about the way that Paul understands his situation, the way that Paul understands the people around him, is that he sees the suffering happening. He sees the storm comes. And what he doesn't say is, oh, there's a storm here because you've done something wrong. You have captured me unjustly, unfairly, and now God is going to murder you all. That is not Paul's response. Paul does not separate the world into bad people who deserve suffering and good people who deserve security. No, instead, he says, in the midst of his suffering, he says, I belong to God, and he continues to serve God and serve those around him. Uh, it says that, that God gave the lives of the people to Paul. That means Paul was seeking the good of those people, the very people that captured him, the very people that were transporting him for a false trial. He sought their good. He did not just care about his own security. He did not just care about the other Christians on board security. He cared about the whole security of the ship. Paul has this expanded definition of we to even include his enemies, the people that have done him wrong. And as we think about our own suffering, our own difficult workplaces, our own difficult family relationships, our own difficult relationships, right? Who is our we? Who are we willing to include to tie our well-being to theirs, to tie our destiny to theirs? I think that's the invitation of the love modeled by Jesus. Jesus, when he came to this earth, in the book of Mark, he's often described as a suffering servant. Now, uh, we read in that verse, in verse 20, where it said that the sun and the stars went out. And I think Luke is writing this because he's actually pointing to something that happened earlier in the book of, in the, in the Gospels. What it, what it says is that during Jesus' crucifixion, the sun and the stars went out. It became dark. In many ways, what we're looking at with Paul is a mini-crucifixion. It's this intensity of suffering and darkness caused by the wrongdoing of other people. Paul is experiencing the same kind of suffering that Jesus did. And this is where I have bad news and good news. In the life of a Christian, the bad news is, is that we will experience what Jesus did. Jesus was not a mere substitute for our suffering. He is also a model of suffering. Part of the road of following Jesus is carrying a cross and experiencing what Jesus did. We are not exempt from suffering. We are not exempt from hardship. We, we know that. We know that in our lived realities. 
And yet, like Jesus, Jesus, in the midst of his suffering, even on the cross, sought to encourage and love and serve those around him. Not by pretending like what was happening was okay, but by being honest, truthful, and loving. And I think the same type of service is our invitation today for us. And to be honest, that's a very insensitive thing for me to say. It's insensitive to say, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of all the pain you're enduring, think about other people. That's, that's not right. That's not a righteous thing to do unless there is a reality of God, and I think there is. I think that invitation to serve in the midst of our own suffering is good, is righteous, is the right way because of the good news on the back end of things. See, there are many ways of understanding God in the world. There are many different theologies. There are many different religious understandings. Uh, there's, one, there's one major way of thinking about it is like a detached view of God, that God kind of set things in motion, created the world, and it's kind of pieced out. He's, he's off and letting the world run as, it, run as it is. And God is neutral to what's happening around us. Other people might believe this idea that God must be appeased, that if we offer the right sacrifices, that if we do the right things, then God will owe us, and God will give us things, and we will have an easier, better life. The Christian God and the God of Jesus, the God that came in the flesh of Jesus, was neither of those things. The God in Jesus was a self-giving God. God did not detach himself from our suffering, nor did he send us suffering, but rather God entered our suffering. God with us, Emmanuel. God is with us in our suffering, entered into the suffering of our world so that we would have a companion, a friend, and a comforter. Not to always protect us from suffering, not to shield us from suffering, but to be with us in suffering. And Jesus suffered on our behalf. God is a self-giving God. And the invitation to be self-giving in this passage and the invitation to be self-giving in the life of following Jesus only comes out of the response of seeing the self-giving God. God. It's why verse 25 becomes so important, because it says, So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. That phrase, faith in God, can also be translated as, I believe God. And why I believe God is so important is because I believe God is different from I believe in God. When we say we believe in God, God is a subject. God is a static image whom we believe in. We believe God is this way. However, Paul is talking about a relational belief. We say, Paul is saying, I believe God in the way that we believe a friend, in the way we believe a partner, the way we believe a parent. It's this relational, active, living relationship of belief and trust. So Paul has this lived experience of trust with God as a person and not as a subject. This self-giving, this relationship to a self-giving God is why he says, keep up your courage. It's funny, because when I see, when I hear courage, I think of like bravery, resilience, the ability to be unaffected by the world, but it's actually more correctly translated as be merry, keep up your spirit. The invitation here is an invitation to joy. Paul, in the midst of all his suffering, remains grounded in a deep joy in a self-giving God. And I think that's our invitation for us today. As we think about the suffering in our life, as we think about the pain we experience, even caused by the people around us, how are we giving ourselves to joy? How are we giving ourselves to the joy of knowing a self 
giving God, the God that Paul knows? And how are we investing in this belief of God? Not, not in God, but a believing God actively in a relationship, in our times in scripture, in our times in prayer, in our times of communal faith. As I wrap our time up, I want to invite the worship team back on. And I know this is a difficult, difficult message to hear the, the text say, serve God, serve people in the hardest season of your life when you can't get a break. And what I love about this passage is that despite all the suffering we might experience, despite all the pain that the world will throw at us, God will never run out of his self to give. There is an unending well of love, of grace, of peace to be received in Jesus. And it might not always be our lived experience, but God is always present to us. And he promises that he will be present to us. So as we take on this vocation to serve in the midst of our, of our suffering, as we take on this call to love our neighbors, including the neighbors that we don't like and that we blame, I want to pray for us and bless us to be witnesses. Witness won't come out of fancy words or clever ideas or political power or anything like that. I think it comes out of humble serving in hard times. So I pray that that would be our call and our vocation today. So let me bless us. Jesus, you are self-giving beyond our understanding. In the book of Romans, Paul wrote this idea that nothing can separate us from the love of God. In the book of Ephesians, he wrote that the love of God is, we have to, we have to understand the depth, the height, the width, the length of it, that it goes beyond our understanding. So Lord, when we are in situations that we cannot understand, would we turn to your self-giving nature, to your generosity, your love, so that we could be a self-giving people of a self-giving God, a witness to a world in need of grace, a witness to a world in need of love. Lord, if we need an experience of your self-giving nature today, I pray that we would receive that that we would accept you into our hearts, that we would accept the good news of the gospel. Lord, bless us in this place today, and would we continue to experience your self-giving goodness as we leave this place today. Amen.